We'll open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. On these first two weeks of 2016, we're going to take a little diversion away from Romans and look at a couple of passages that I hope will set really the angle for our year. As you're turning there, let me uh, go ahead and admit from the beginning, this is a passage, not necessarily the sermon, but this is a passage I have preached at least three times here at Mission Road Bible Church. It is also a passage that I promise you will hear again many times in the future. It is a, um, it's one of those life verses for me, and as a pastor, it is one of those self-regulating principles that drives everything I do. Keeps me on track and in focus. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In college, I was in an English literature class. Actually, it was an ancient literature class in the English department. And I was assigned to read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. How many of you have read the Iliad and the Odyssey? It's great. Um, You've probably seen it dramatized on television before. When I was reading that, I remember beginning it in the language, because it's translated from the Greek, is a little awkward and stilted, and it's it's set in meter and... I I, I didn't really understand. It took me actually several pages to kind of get into the rhythm of of, uh, Homer's writing, or at least the translation. But once I did, it was fascinating. It was was a page-turner. There's a scene that I always remembered in the Odyssey where a goddess, Kirki, warns Odysseus about the next part of his journey. This next part would entail sailing by an island on which lived two women, some say up to five, later renditions of the Odyssey said five, a couple of women called the Sirens. Remember the Sirens? These Sirens are very dangerous ladies. They were demagogues, not really human, not really gods. They were odd sorts. And they would try to lure men to their deaths on their island with their voices, their beauty, and the promise of knowledge. They would woo them in, and they would, the ships would get close to the island. It was treacherous and rocky. Ships would, would then wreck. They would woo them onto the island, and then they would eat them. They were cannibals. Odysseus... Interestingly, was the first living mortal to ever live to tell the tale of the sirens. And the only reason he was able to live to tell this tale of sailing by the sirens was he had his men put beeswax in their ears so they couldn't hear the, the wooing temptation of these sirens. And as they sailed by, they had him, the, he, he had his crew tie him to the mast chain his feet to the deck so that no matter what he heard, he wouldn't be wooed toward the island. 
Sure enough, they came toward the island. All the men had their beeswax in their, in their ear. And Odysseus heard what the sirens sang and said, and this is what it was. Quote, Come this way, honored Odysseus, the great glory of the Achaeans, and stay your ship so that you can listen here to our singing. For no one else has ever sailed past this place in his black ship until he has listened to the honey-sweet voice that issues from our lips. Then goes on, well, please, knowing more than he ever did before. For we know everything that the Argives and the Trojans did and suffered in wide Troy through the gods' despite. Over all the generous earth, we know everything that happens, end quote, says the sirens. Well, much to his fighting and persuading the men, Odysseus sailed by the island and lived to tell the tale. It's an interesting mythology. What's very interesting, though, is how this illustrates almost exactly what's happening here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a wooing temptation, a pulling away, a way to get off track, off mission, off focus. Paul understands that. But here, it's not the mythology of the sirens. It's the reality of Satan. This is what happens every day, every week, every month, every part of our lives. That's exactly what Paul warns the Corinthians about here as he discusses this temptation to get off track. In the Odyssey, Kirke, remember the... Goddess was fearful that Odysseus would be distracted from his mission. And similarly, Paul is very concerned that you and I might get off track and off focus. But this is far more than mythology. This is real life, and it involves real death. Let me just tell you, as we look at this passage again, the importance of this in my own life, in my own ministry. This is one of those anchor points for me. Um, I, I, I was trying to think back over the last 20 years. I think I've probably preached this passage when I've been able to travel or go places or teach. I've preached this passage more than any other verse that I ever have. And I still, even looking at it this week, found new nuances and fresh insights. It is so rich with practicality. So let's break it down by noticing three dimensions of pastoral concern. Three dimensions of pastoral concern. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, I didn't come on the first year of 2016 to hear about pastor's concern. Except for pastor, you shouldn't take as an official pastor of the church. Pastoral concern, by that I mean shepherding care over the soul of another. This is a, an excellent passage for parents to think of in reference to their children. For husbands with their wives. For disciples with their Discipleship groups with their disciples, for care groups with those in their groups. This is a, the, the seam work of all pastoral work and all pastoral ministry. It's not just to be done by those who call themselves pastors. This is a concern that each of us are to have for each other's souls. The first dimension of pastoral concern is in the first part of the verse. 
the intensity of pastoral concern. The intensity of pastoral concern, and Paul calls this a reasonable fear. Look back to the verse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven three, but I am afraid. I am afraid. In order to understand this, you have to have some context. So go back up into verse 2. He says, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. That's what a father did with his daughter. He's using the language of, of a father to a daughter. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul understood himself to be the spiritual father of the Corinthians. He understood Christ as their bridegroom. And during the betrothal period in the ancient Near East, during that engagement time, the father took public responsibility for the virginal fidelity of the engaged daughter until the marriage day. He was deeply involved in her purity. There's a little footnote application for any father with daughters. Deeply involved with that purity. By the way, back in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul spoke of the day of the Lord Jesus when he wanted to be proud of the Corinthians as he presented them to Jesus pure and unstained. I think it's interesting here. He doesn't say a husband, but one husband. The concept is of exclusivity, not of possibility. And this is not mere normal human jealousy. Paul's not motivated like you and I might be or, or a, a jealous fiancé or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not that kind of jealousy. It's not motivated by envy or self-interest. He is motivated by protecting something for someone else. He wants to protect the Corinthians and present them to Christ. He sees it as a stewardship for which he's going to give an account. It's a deep, emotional, vigorous response to seeing the blood-bought son or daughter of God flirting with any way or any worldview that might diminish unilateral, exclusive devotion to Jesus. It's impressive to me that Paul's eschatology had so much to do with his current state. He thought about the end... And the end, when we will all see Christ, had immediate practical application in the present. It's the jealousy of a father protecting his daughter until she's married. And that's what Paul had for his flock. This word is, is one you know. It's the, the word fear comes from the Greek word phobias. From which we get phobia. And we, we've kind of made it a general fear. The original understanding of this word though was, was largely an agricultural it was, a, it was husbandry it was, used, it was with animals it was, it was used of a, of a horse that was spooked it was an intense bolting it was running, fleeing, frightened by a fear this is not just you know, afraid to go into a dark room this is being startled, alarmed it's intense also the word fear in the Greek sentence is first. It's a little bit like Yoda might speak. Fearful I am. Fearful. I want you to hear that. The first thing that comes out of my mouth. Fearful. That's what I am. I have an intense response of fear. 
Psychologists tell us that fear is the strongest human emotion that creates the strongest reaction. Some of you know that fear if you're afraid of snakes and you're walking on a trail and you, you happen upon a snake that is usually a, an, a, a moment for um, the use of your vocal cords in ways that you typically don't use them, right? Fear of spiders, you put your foot into a shoe and something is moving at the end. All of us have these fears, but this is deeper than even those phobias. This is being startled, alarmed, panicked is the word. Now, this is remarkable to me that Paul was afraid. Think about Paul. He wasn't afraid of anything. He proclaimed the gospel in hostile synagogues. He preached in open Gentile marketplaces. He debated on the Areopagus of Athens. He evangelized before the intimidating council of Jerusalem who had murdered Jesus. He had been beaten so badly at Lystra that he was drug out to a ditch and thrown in it and left for dead. He stood before Agrippa and Felix and Festus and proclaimed the gospel with his life on the line. Even he was faithful in, in Acts 20 when he was, um, or in the book of Acts, when he was chained to, to a wall in prison, he was evangelizing his soldiers who were holding him at sword point. And then in Acts 20, he told the Ephesian elders in Miletus that the Holy Spirit had promised him, everywhere you go, you will meet chains and suffering. That's a great promise, isn't it? God loves Paul and has a wonderful plan for his life. Great, what? Everywhere you go, they're going to beat you up for the gospel. Then I'll go proclaim the gospel. That was his response. And then one of my favorite phrases in all the Bibles in Acts chapter 17, where... Remember, they're looking everywhere for Paul. Paul's already left. They knock on Jason's door, and they said, Where is Paul who's upset the world? What a great testimony. He was fearless, and his fearlessness cost him. Look across the page at verse 23. Contrasting himself with false prophets, he said, Are they servants of Christ? Huh, I speak as if insane. I more so. And listen to this. And far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in hardship and labor through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, I love how Paul puts this with these other hardships there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Wow. This was no wimp. This was no spiritual wimp. This was a man who would ultimately be so faithful, he'd be brought to Rome, lay his head on an anvil, and it would be severed because of his faithfulness to Christ. When Paul was born, the Roman Empire was fully entrenched in heathenism. 
But when Paul died, it had been rocked and shaken by the preached word of God through the gospel that Paul proclaimed. And yet, Paul says, I'm afraid. When Paul says he's afraid, that ought to get your attention. It is a fearful, desperate apostle we, might, we meet. I am afraid. What is this fearless apostle, this audacious missionary, bold pastor, ferocious theologian afraid of? He was afraid that the Corinthians might defect from Jesus. As we've seen in our book of study of Romans, he was not a hyper-Calvinist. He understood that it was possible for people to leave their focus on Jesus and chase after other things. False teachers had infiltrated the Corinthian church. They were preaching a false gospel. Further, they had been attacking Paul's gospel and Paul personally, saying he's not a good speaker, he's ugly. It was to gain a following after themselves. And in chapter 11, Paul provides the climax of his defense against this nonsense, the heart of his ministerial aspirations for the Corinthians as wanting them attached to Christ. There were false Christs during Paul's day. False apostles, false prophets, false evangelists, false teachers, false elders, false brethren, And Paul is telling this little church, Corinthians, at Corinth, which is between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus, or Sparta, right at that little isthmus. All the influences were coming from the oceans and from the land masses. He tells them, I'm afraid that there are so many influences in your life that you are going to choose one or more of them to pursue and follow and give your allegiance to more than you will your Lord and Savior who died for you. That leads us to number two. He had a reasonable fear. It was intense pastoral concern. His second dimension of pastoral concern is the archetype for pastoral concern, namely Eve's deception. This is an illustration, an archetype, a, a classic uh, story that's used to teach more than just the story that it tells. It's to be a paradigm, an archetype, he has a little parenthesis here. I'm afraid. He'll pick up what he's afraid of at the end of the verse. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Paul now goes back to this epic illustration that functions in two dimensions. It illustrates the point he's making. It also shows how purely and strategically Paul used biblical truth. Just for a moment, turn back to Genesis chapter 3. A passage with which you're all familiar. He goes back to Genesis. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning or crafty. Same idea as we meet here in, in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And 
he said to the woman, does that not just stop you? There's no footnote, there's no margin note, there's no end note. Here in the third chapter of Genesis, a snake talks, or an animal talks to a woman, and that's okay. (laughs) Do you believe that? Paul did. Paul believed in the historical veracity of this account and encounter. He believed in a talking snake. Do you? Will you? He said, indeed, has God said? Is that underlined in your Bible? Probably should be. Has God said? Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, this is no problem for her just to talk back to the snake. Makes me wonder what the relationship with men and animals was during that pre-fall state. The woman said to the serpent, she's got reasons with him back. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She has a little. Or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's so much of that that's true. And so much of that that's the false promise. Remember the sirens saying, We know everything. We'll tell you how you go, Odysseus. They would know good and evil in just a few minutes, wouldn't they? But they would not be like God. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and a tree was desirable to make one wise. You know what those three statements are? Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Which John says in First John 2, that's all that's in the world. That's the only thing Satan has. He targeted all three of them with Eve here. Well, then what does she do? She took from its fruit and ate. Where is Adam? And she gave also to her husband. Where is he? With her. And he ate. This is an important point. When Paul comes in Romans chapter 5 and says that just as sin was imputed to us by Adam, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by Jesus, he goes back and he says the fall of the human race is attributed to Adam and not Eve. And yet this looks at first glance like Eve is the one who blew it, right? And she did. But that little phrase, with her, tells us everything we need to know about Romans 5. Adam was not operating as her protector, as her shepherd, as her pastor, as her keeper. Adam failed Eve before Eve failed God. And in that, the first failure was between Adam and God. That's important. 
Because what's not in, you can turn back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 now, what's not here is, is written all in the white spaces. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, implication, Adam was not deceived. Eve fell because she was deceived. That's what 1 Timothy 2.13 tells us as well. Adam still sinned out of willful disobedience. I think Adam chose Eve over God. What Adam did is not in question. What happened to Eve here is, as the serpent deceived Eve, two big words, deceived Eve by his witting, his craftiness. Don Carson says, when Eve fell, it was not because she was battered into sinful submission by a wicked overlord, but because she was taken by cunning, end quote. She was deceived, 1 Timothy 2.13 says. The serpent lied to, deceived, tricked Eve. How did he trick her? Don't miss this. As you begin your year, don't miss this. He tricked her by saying, are you sure that you know what God said? Are you sure about God's word? Had Eve been more sure about what God had said, she wouldn't have been deceived. Satan is always trying to trick believers into following a self-centered, Christ-distancing faith. The problem is that the enemy uses our words from the Bible and his dictionary. He uses words we're familiar with and substitutes his own trickery. He uses the phraseology of faith but defines them by Self-interest, self-adulation, flattery. He makes errors seem reasonable. And the best way to do that is by making people feel good about themselves. Look at verse 4. Back to 2 Corinthians eleven three. Verse 4 says, For if one comes and preaches, ha, huh, another Jesus, a different Jesus than you've heard from us. One we've not preached. Or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted. And then he says, tongue-in-cheek, you bear this beautifully. What are you thinking? This is the age-old protocol of liberalism, right? It's it's the Jesus of the, the talk shows. It's the Jesus of Larry King Live experts who used to come on and just say, ah, oh, well, Jesus is, he would have, I, I, the Jesus I know would have never, or would never. It doesn't matter about the Jesus you know if the Jesus you know is not defined by the real Jesus in Scripture. I think this is so clear. Satan is constantly trying to make your mind believe things about Jesus that are not true, which has massive and radical implications on your life. She was deceived. She was deceived by thinking what God said was what Satan said. 
and it wasn't. Said another way, what Satan said was what God said. Easy substitution in his mind. Now, before we throw too many rocks at liberalism for doing this, don't, don't you do that easily as well? Listen, every time, every single time you and I sin, we have believed in a different Jesus than the Bible teaches us. Maybe he's more tolerant than we think. Maybe he doesn't really see as the scripture tells us he sees. Maybe he doesn't judge sin as the scripture promises. Maybe he's this and that rather than reading and letting the Bible define who Jesus is. Paul says, I'm afraid just as Eve was deceived that you might be deceived. How does he do that? How does he deceive? Well, there's a couple of ways he does that. First of all, he disguises himself. He never comes as Satan. He comes as an angel of light. Look down at verse 13. Remember, he's giving a defense against these false apostles. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan, here's our word, disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising that if, any, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. He's a disguiser. He doesn't come like we picture him in those horror movies, all ugly and scary. He's not scary. He doesn't present himself as scary. He presents himself as invitable, entertainable, wanting to be with you. I think Satan comes to our church every Sunday. He disguises himself. Satan never looks like Satan, nor do his demons. He also deceives. Remember John 8, 44? He's the father of lies. So he's always lying to us. That's why Paul calls sin the lusts of deceit in Ephesians. They, they lie to us. Satan tells us all the time, if you sin, it will be better than if you don't. If you sin, it will be no big deal. If you sin, God will not treat you as the Bible tells you. He deceives. He's a liar. Just a little footnote, a little parenting principle. It says those who, John 8, 44, it says, you lie because you're of your father, the devil. He's the father of lies. So when, we, when our boys were, were growing up, the worst consequences always came from lying. Always. Because you're acting like the devil when you lie. He also distracts. He puts attention on herself rather than Christ, on me, me, me. Why can't the church accommodate my life, my schedule, my needs, my, my, my? Why can't God answer my prayers about me? And he distracts us and he distorts. He's a master eisegete. You know what eisegesis is? Putting something in the Bible that's not there. His main attack is by using God's word in a distorted, out of context, incomplete, augmented, or diminished way. He would much rather us think of Christianity as behavior modification Trying harder, self-fulfillment, psychological rescue, rather than a relationship with the crucified Messiah who died a substitutionary death for the sins of those who believe. This is all throughout, all throughout the scriptures. You foolish Galatians, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians, who's bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? 
Who's bewitched you? Have you begun in the Spirit and now you're being perfected by the flesh? In other words, did you start out with the Spirit and with Jesus and the gospel and now you're just doing it yourself? You've redefined things? You've redefined your own terms with God? Romans 16, 18, for such are men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. There's the contrast. Slave of our appetites versus being a slave of Christ. Satan's supreme ambition is to prevent Jesus from having supremacy in the human heart. Fair and simple. His supreme ambition is to keep Jesus from being supreme in the human heart. Which leads to our third dimension of pastoral concern. We saw that Eve was deceived. We want to be deceived by that. Number three, the concentration of pastoral concern. This is very clear, very simple. The concentration of pastoral concern, namely distraction from Christ. We concentrate on not being distracted from Christ, on the issue of distraction from Christ. Now go back and put the verb with the, the, uh, the predicate. I am afraid that your minds, take the parentheses of Eve out for a moment, that your minds, this is what he's afraid of, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In this last phrase, Paul makes it very simple. Jesus Christ is to be the integrating centrality of our lives. Integrating centrality means everything leads to him. Everything leads from him. He's not a part of our lives. He is the point of our existence. Look what he says there. Your minds. Your minds. Christianity is fundamentally rational. It's won or lost in the mind. What do we say all the time? If you have an issue, to self, you want to self-counsel yourself, you ask yourself three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? It's a mind battle. What do I believe, in other words? He says, I'm afraid your thought processes, your thinking will be led astray from Christ. Things will change your mind. How does that happen? Because we allow things to come into our minds that compete with Jesus for supremacy. Our minds are the primary tar targets for the assaults of the enemy. The Corinthians were being led astray, literally corrupted, stained by what verse 4 calls another spirit, another Jesus, and another gospel. I mean, these terms show us how how crafty the enemy is. It's, it's not one angle of attack. It's multiple attacks. Distractions from being focused entirely and exhaustively on Jesus. Led astray, corrupted. And then this is, this is interesting Greek that makes really bad English. But I think if you understand the Greek, it puts an exclamation point a little stronger than it does even in our English translations. Look at your text there. You see that little phrase in the last part of verse 3, of devotion? Is that in italics in your Bible? If you're a New American Standard, it is. Italics means it's not in the original, that the interpreters, the, the translators rather, supplied that just to give us some help. It's not a bad translation. There's just a better way of looking at that. Let's put it all together and listen to the way Paul said it. Fearful I am for you. I am afraid. Fearful, afraid I am. That as the serpent deceived 
with craftiness, Eve, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Christ. Of devotion catches some of the nuance, but he's really not talking about devotion. He's talking about you. Simplicity and purity of you, of me, of us, of the person, your whole being to Christ. From simplicity and purity to Christ, all being focused on him. Simplicity means being single-minded. It's used in Ephesians 6, 5, Colossians 3, 2. And purity means simple pureness, that your mind would be free from sin, that sinful influences would not compete with Jesus. It's all about the mind. Don't you wish there were a delete button for your mind? Wow, there are things I wish I could erase, delete, never think of again. Images I wish were gone. Thoughts, conversations that I wish were erased. You are the custodian of your mind. Your mind is what the Bible calls your heart. Mission control central of your life. You know, we, we, we're constantly having discussions in our home. Should we listen to this, see this, watch this, say this? But, and, and when we say, well, does it, are we protecting our minds from, from being distracted from Christ by this? You know what we talk about? We feel, boy, we kind of feel legalistic by doing that or seeing that or say, saying that or not seeing that or whatever. And that's not legalism. Legalism is trying to be saved by works. High moral standard is trying to be sanctified. There's a big difference. I, I, I'm not going to, this is not the movie sermon, but I hear people say, well, you know, it doesn't bother me to watch that. Well, it bothered Jesus enough to die for. So are we going to entertain ourselves with things for which our Lord and Savior died? Why? What, what, what's the harm? Because it gets in our minds and those things begin to compete with Christ for control and supremacy of our, of our affections. Simplicity and purity to Christ, Jonathan Edwards wrote, the soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. It's never weary of him. Wow. Are we ever weary of looking at Christ? Edward says, the soul that's ravished by Christ never wearies of looking at him. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 4, in reference to your former life, you did not learn Christ in that way. You learned Christ. He told the Corinthians, I came to you with knowing nothing except Jesus and him crucified in 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 4, he says... We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that... Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. I love Galatians 4.19. Oh, what a great parenting and pastor's verse. Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. We can go on and on with this accent. The world has been crucified to me. 
because of the cross of Jesus, Galatians 6.14, Philippians 1.21, for me, to me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Philippians 3, 7 and following, I've counted everything lost for the sake of Christ. Colossians 1.18, he should have first place in everything. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. Colossians 3.4, when Christ comes, who is our life. 1 Peter 2 9, our evangelism is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. 2 Peter 1 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Tonight, we're going to come back and celebrate the Lord's table. You know why? Because he says, often as you do this, do this to two words. Remember me. Why? Because he knew we would forget. We've talked about this experiment before. Go to lunch today and take your Bible. Sit on the table. If it's a restaurant... Works even better. Look, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's going to be our planet, so you can take your Bible anywhere you want to. It's okay. Turn the New Testament, but outside of Acts. Don't use Matthew through Acts because it's too easy. Anywhere from Acts, from Romans on, just open up your Bible, drop your finger, and start reading and let someone have a timer and see how long it takes you to run into a reference to Jesus. Serious, try it. You're going to be shocked. He's everywhere because he's the focus. As we begin 2016, my prayer for our church is we begin, not this year, but our lives, consume with Christ. That man from Nazareth, who is God. This passage warns us of two errors. First, don't fall into the trap Eve did by being deceived by Satan's craftiness of listening to another Jesus, another gospel, defining biblical terms by non-biblical means. And second, don't be distracted from Jesus himself. So what we should be deliberate about? Remember what Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. So the one whose heart is full of Christ speaks of Jesus. And the one who speaks of Jesus has a heart full of Christ. But if he is not the object of our conversation, if he's not on the radar of our discussion, it could be that he's not on the, in the focus of our hearts, right? All of that was introduction to 2 Peter 3.18. I want you to look at this. Turn over there 
We'll be done. 2 Peter 3.18. How do you want to launch the year? How do you want to shepherd your family? 2 Peter 3.18, the end of 2 Peter, he says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want a life verse? You want a year verse? You want a week verse? You want, any, you want a verse for your, your application? Here it is. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our mandate as a church. That is our passion as your church's leadership. That should be your attention and your focus as parents, as a care group leader, as a discipler, as a friend, exercising pastoral concern with each other. What would our church be like corporately if that's what we were like individually? Well, I can't wait to find out. My prayer is that this is our best year ever. And yet, individually, and making Jesus the object and focus, not just of our life, but our thinking, our minds. He is the object of our attention. We are, can we say it? We are to be obsessed with the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. feel so lacking in so many dimensions of my own life, Father, in accenting your son. Please, please enable us by the supernatural presence and power of your spirit to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as your word regulates Oh, God, please, I beg you, please make our church fragrant with the aroma of Christ. Not only for your pleasure and for your glory, but for our good. Show us Christ. Lead us to Christ. Empower us to proclaim Christ. He is our all in all in reality. Make him our all in all in our affections. Please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.